Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Word of God. And Lord, we thank you that you are all of the things that we've been singing about tonight. Holy, eternal, self-existent. That you are the Lord God. Not only are you the self-existent God who occupies eternity, you are powerful, omniscient, omnipotent. And Heavenly Father, we know that all idols will one day be destroyed. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray this evening that we would purpose in our heart to destroy anything and everything that stands in opposition to you being the exclusive Lord of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 5, it says, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer, or if you like Ebenezer, to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, the head of Dagon, and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, or as the old King James puts it, hemorrhoids, which I think is a much more descriptive word. Both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of God of of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction and he struck the men of the city both small and great and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out saying, They brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it doesn't kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die 
were stricken with the tumors and the cry of the city went up into heaven. This is the middle chapter of three chapters that deal with the ark of God. And chapter four recorded its capture. Chapter five proves that God isn't powerless. And chapter six is going to tell the story of the ark's return. In chapter four, you'll remember that the glory of God departed from the temple. In chapter five, God is going to defend his holiness before the heathen Philistines. And in chapter six, God defends his holiness before his own people, the people of Israel. And by the way, in chapter seven, Samuel is going to return to the text and he's going to call the people to repent so that they can be delivered. In chapter 5, we find what we call the ark in exile. Some of my conservative friends who um, happen to be talk show hosts like to refer to their program as conservatism in exile. And you know, in many, many ways, we're experiencing a situation where Christianity, the Lord Jesus Christ, has gone into exile. And let me tell you what I mean by that. For whatever reason, Christians are reluctant to express their deeply held convictions. And make no mistake about it, we're living in a world that is beginning to distance itself from historic biblical Christianity. I think that our culture thinks that it has captured the God of Christianity and rendered him helpless, powerless, useless. You see, you have to understand part of what is taking place in this context. The children of Israel have suffered an amazing defeat. Tens of thousands of Israel Israelis are lying dead and they and the ark has been captured and they may have been wondering if God has somehow lost his power. That somehow, how is it possible that the pagans, the Philistines have taken the symbol of our true and living God? Does this mean that God is powerless? Well, guess what? The Philistines are about to find out. Look at verse 1. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God. This is, remember, the Ark of the Covenant. This is that little square box that was about three feet by three feet by three feet that's covered in gold, that's made from acacia wood. Remember, the cherubim, the angels, the Ark of the angels are upon the mercy seat. And remember, remember, this is the... It was more than just simply the symbol of the presence of God among his people. The mercy seat was the mechanism whereby the high priest would come and take the blood and place it upon the mercy seat so that the children of Israel could experience forgiveness. The Philistines, by the way, had five principal cities. They were called Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon. Gath and Ekron. 
Now, again, you have to go back in Israeli history when Moses is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. Joshua is taking the children of Israel into the promised land. And I've told you over and over again, when God told them to occupy the land, there were people already there. And those people didn't want to leave. And it becomes, remember, a type and a picture of our life in Christ. That God is calling you to occupy Christ. But there are things inside of us that don't want to leave. Pernicious and wicked. And they retain control of certain areas of our life. And by the way, um, do you think the Gaza still is creating problems for the people of Israel? (laughs) Now, Ashdod was the principal city. It was about three miles from the coast. And if you have a Bible and you have maps in your Bible, if you go to the map and you pinpoint Jerusalem and you go all the way west from Jerusalem, that's where you're going to find Ashdod. So there was Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, Gaza. And the tell of the ancient site of Ashdod is about three and one-half miles south of the modern city. It's about a 20-acre acropolis, and the lower city is about 100 acres. And I would love to go there and dig that little tell up. Because you know what? what's underneath that mound of dirt? Treasure. Treasure. Treasure that confirms that what the Bible says is true. And in verse 2 it says, When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon. And they set it by Dagon. By the way, in the ancient world, they would often have temples. And in their temples, they would make it according to a certain mechanism or a certain architecture. And ancient temples, particularly pagan temples, had what was known as a holy place. And for ancient peoples, they would place the relic or the statue of an enemy's gods into their god's temple. You see, part of the reason why they would do that, it was sort of their way of proving that their god was superior to the other person's god. So if you could win a battle, if you could capture the relics of the opposition, if you could take their relics and place it into your temple... You know what they would do? This is going to sound crazy to you. But they would allow the defeated people to come and visit their city so that they could worship their God in their temple, even though it was a sign of humiliation and defeat. It was the Philistines' way of saying, Our God's better than your God. Our God's better than yours. Our God's better because he defeated your God. Our God's better than yours. So this is in the Middle Eastern pantheon. Their God, Dagon, they're thinking, our God's superior to Jehovah, to Yahweh. Now, in the Middle Eastern pantheon, Dagon was the principal God of the Philistines. He was according to their mythology, the supposed father of Baal. Now, many of you who are familiar with the Bible, you realize that Baal worship was something that created problems with the children of Israel over and over again. Baal, according to the ancient Middle Eastern 
um, mythology was the god of the storm. And Dagon was a god who was represented with the head of a fish and the body of a man. And according to their belief system, Dagon was the god of the harvest, of grain. It would be, in a way, our way of saying their chief god was the economy, stupid. In their way of thinking, remember, all of life is a part of a cycle. And the cycle is you plant the seed and the seed grows and you harvest the seed and you grind the grain which provides bread for the people. And if there is no harvest, if there is no seed, if there is no grain, if there is no bread, if there is no food, there are no people. In their world, grain was the source of life, and it was the source of their continued existence. So guess what was the most important thing in their life? The harvest. Now, we as grown-ups think, well, that's kind of stupid to build a little statue and pretend like that's a god, and then worshiping that god. But it wasn't the statue that they were worshiping. It was the invisible forces behind that visible statue. And by placing the Ark of God in the temple of Dagon, it was their way of saying, we've captured Jehovah, Yahweh. Yahweh is our prisoner. And Yahweh has been captured by Dagon. And this proves Yahweh's inferiority. His inferiority has already been demonstrated on the battlefield. And now, it's Yahweh's job to be Dagon's servant. And he will attend Dagon in his temple. Now, you've got to understand something. In the ancient world, it was believed that deities had certain powers. And that each deity had a certain sphere of influence. And the sphere of influence was in a certain area, or a region, or a city. So if you're the god of the storm, guess where you're the most powerful? In the storm. If you're the god of the harvest, guess where you're the most powerful? In the ground. If you're the god of the sun, if you're the god of the moon, if you're the god of the sky, if you're the god of the stars, you are the god in that particular area or region. And and you would think that in Dagon's temple, guess where Dagon is strongest and most powerful? It's in his temple. That's where he reigns supreme. His temple is in the heart of the Philistine territory. And guess what? We sometimes think the same way. You would think in Saudi Arabia or in Iran, in Mecca and Medina, where's the Muslim God most powerful? Among the Muslim people? In the Muslim cities? You would think in Salt Lake City, the great God of the Mormons reigns supreme. I was listening to, what's his name? Um, What's his name? Tim Hawkins? He's the guy who does the Chick fil A song. But he was, 
he was talking about being a worship leader, and he said, you know, he was a worship leader for many different types of religions even before he got saved. He said he, you know, he would lead worship for the Jehovah's Witnesses. He would sing that song, Someone's knocking at the door, somebody's ringing your bell. Yeah, that's what I laughed too. I thought, you know, that's funny. That is funny. But the mere symbol of God's presence of Jehovah or Yahweh is enough to topple the false God. You see, I'm going to ask you a question. We know that we're coming out of the time of the judges. Samuel is going to be the last judge. We're headed for the time of the kings. Would you think it, do you think it's safe to say that Israel was a weak and divided nation at this point in their history? The answer is yes. They were a weak and a divided nation. But because Israel was a weak and a divided nation, does that mean that Israel's God, the self-existent God, the transcendent God, the eternal God, the omnipotent God, the immutable God, the omniscient God, the wise and sovereign and faithful and loving God, is He weak and divided? The answer is no. By the way, if the church is weak and divided... Does that make Jesus any less Lord? Is Jesus still the loving Lord? Is He still the Savior of all? Is He still the forgiver of sins? Is He still the healer of hearts? Is He still the person who provides us hope and direction and a future? I'm here to tell you something. The power and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't dependent upon a weak and a divided church. But I'm here to tell you something. That a united and a worshiping and a humble and a submissive church is going to be used by God in remarkable ways. And look at verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. <laughs> Can you imagine? They put the Ark of the Covenant inside of the temple and an invisible hand takes the little statue and then puts it on its face towards the Ark of the Covenant to worship the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> imagine that. A God that falls down And a God that needs human beings to set it in its place again. You know what that is? That is the perfect biblical picture of every dead idol and every man-made God. Because you know what? False gods are exactly that. Fallen. Empty. The book of Isaiah says they don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. They don't have a heart that beats. They can't understand anything. Ken Chapin in his communicator's commentary writes, It is not easy to relinquish an inadequate understanding of God. Even today when our little gods fall, our first instinct is not to abandon them, but to prop them up again. 
The prophets constantly reminded Israel and us that the gods we make are always impotent when they face the living God. Like our government. We sometimes think that there are certain gods that are too big to fail. You can't let this particular God fail. We pursue a personal bailout plan in order to keep our own false gods working in our lives. Our addictions. Our affections. We want certain things in our life. But they're empty and weak and powerless even Christians sometimes lie to themselves about their own idols. But here, I'm here to tell you that the future of every single man-made idol is destruction. Not a single one will last. Not a single one will survive. And if you've ever thought to yourself, do I have an idol? Is there something in my life that is more important than the Lord? Is there something in my life that I've put ahead of the Lord Jesus Christ? There's a very simple test that you can run to determine where you are in your heart. Do you know what that test is? Try it tomorrow morning. Ready? The first thing that you get up and you think about, the thing that you devote your energies and attention towards, the thing that occupies your affection, the thing that occupies you when you go to bed at night, the thing that you live for, love, and spend most of your time devoted to, whether you like it or not, that is your God. It might be your husband. It might be your wife. It might be your children. It might be your job. It might be your hobby. It might be your addiction. But I'm here to tell you that God, the true and the living God, wants to be God in your life. And the true and the living God isn't afraid of the idol, even where it's strongest. Even where it's supposed to have the most grip and the most control. As a matter of fact, look at verse 4. It says, and when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left. Now, you have to understand something in that culture. The repeated falls of Dagon is supposed to send a message. Now, again, what do you suppose the message is? Yahweh is not a defeated, inferior, subordinate God who is suffering humiliation. Now, in the ancient culture, when you would cut off the hands of an enemy, you know why they would do that? So that they could count casualties. In other words, they would determine how much havoc they had wreaked by cutting off the head and cutting off the hands of an enemy. If you wanted to prove your enemy was dead, what better trophy than your enemy's head? Remember, David will later do that. 
when he faces Goliath of Gath, a Philistine, he slays the giant, he cuts off his head, and he holds it up for all the world to see. Now, if someone is holding up a severed human head, do you think it's safe to say that your enemy is pretty much dead? This is God's way of saying the enemy that stands in opposition to God will become a casualty. This is going to shock you. This is going to surprise you. It might even disturb you. The Lord doesn't just humiliate his enemies. There are times and there are circumstances when he mutilates his enemies. The severed hands is proof positive that the idols that we construct are exactly that, a manufactured object. Idols are lifeless, they are powerless, they are useless, and they have only one destiny. And that's destruction. Don't you find it interesting, even a little bit interesting, that with all the things that the Philistines could worship, they can worship the sun, they can worship the moon, they can worship the stars, they can worship the grain, they can worship the storm. The one thing that they continued to give themselves to believe in was the one true and living God. Doesn't it shock you and surprise you that your family, your friends, your husband, your wife, your children, your neighbors, that out of all the things that they could choose to worship, that of all the things that they continue to worship, their job, the economy, their political party, their this, their that, out of all of the things that they can love, out of all of the things that they can adore, out of all of the things that they can pursue, their addictions... The one thing, the one thing, the one thing that they're reluctant to believe in is the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever met someone who said, look, I'm willing to believe in just about anything. Except for Jesus. Does that make sense to you? That the one person who can provide hope, the one person who can provide forgiveness, the one person who can provide direction is the one person that they close the door to. Idols are powerless to help in hardship. They're helpless when it comes to providing hope. They're helpless in financial distress and sickness and accident and broken promises and depression and loneliness and trial and temptation. There's really only two things that the Lord demands from us. The first is to have absolutely nothing to do with false gods and false idols. And that's why the Lord says... That you should acknowledge Him. That you should worship Him and Him only. The psalmist said, My soul thirsts for God. When shall I come and appear? 
appear before the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul, when he was writing to, to the Thessalonians, he said, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. He talks about the reality that those people who pursued the false idols, the empty, wicked, stupid things that they used to do, and they turned from them. In order to provide hope and help. You know what else kind of amazes me about this particular passage? When they find the head of Dagon and both of the palms and both of his hands broken off in the threshold, it may be difficult for you to understand the meaning of the threshold in the ancient world. I have a friend who's a missionary. And he's brought the gospel into uh, difficult places in Africa. And in Africa, there are certain belief systems concerning animism and spiritism. As a matter of fact, you can go to certain villages and they'll paint the windows and they'll paint the threshold of the door blue. And my friend asked, you know, why are you painting the windows and the threshold blue? And the person who allegedly had accepted Christ said, it's to keep the demons out of the house. You see, in their way of thinking, if you could break the threshold, that allows supernatural entry into a particular temple. In the Philistine worldview, they thought that if somehow the threshold could be broached, a supernatural energy door could be opened and foreign powers could come in and disturb the deity. Ladies, you realize that in, in the ancient world, many peoples believed that supernatural entities could enter the orifices of your body. And so people began to wear amulets on their ears in order to prevent demons from inhabiting their body. That's why they would wear amulets on their noses and amulets on their mouth. Because that they believed that these magical properties could keep the demon from entering the orifice. And in the ancient world, in the worldview of, of the Philistines, they believed that if you could breach the threshold, then evil spirits could come in. And so, in verse 5, it says, Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. When the book of Samuel was written, they talked about the fear and the superstition that continued among the worshipers of Dagon because the one thing that they couldn't bring themselves to do when they found their broken and useless and lifeless idol bowing before the Ark of the Covenant, you know what the right response should have been? It should have been, hey, let's all worship the Ark of the Covenant. Let's abandon our sin and our silliness and our wickedness and our fear and our stupidity and our superstition. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Do you think we still embrace religious superstitions? We do. 
you know, the IVP Bible background gives a great note on this particular verse. Um, it says, quote, The threshold was typically made of a single stone that spanned the doorway, raised slightly from the level of the door. Sockets were cut into the outer edges of the threshold on which the gates or doors swung open, and the height of the threshold would prevent the doors from swinging out. Entryways were often considered both sacred and vulnerable. Superstitious belief held that stepping on the threshold would allow demons that haunted the entryway to gain admission. Perhaps that was the preferred explanation among the Philistines for Dagon's troubles. In other words, what he is saying is they couldn't bring themselves to believe that their God was false. And that Israel's God was true. There has to be another explanation. There has to be another explanation why the economy is failing. There has to be another explanation for hurricanes and drought and famine. There has to be another explanation for disease and problems. There has to be another explanation. The rituals and the superstitions of the Philistines have disappeared into history. But there are still cultures that step over the threshold. When you were a little kid, did you ever say, step on a crack and, yeah, we said, what an odd thing to say. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same always. It says in verse 6, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now contrast the headless, handless, lifeless, useless God of the Philistines with the mighty hand of God. Was it the Ark of the Covenant? that brought on the plague? I don't think so. You know, those of you who are familiar with the uh, Steven Spielberg Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, some people have said, the Ark of the Covenant, why? It's a communication device with God. And the radiation that emanated from the Ark of the Covenant, there was a powerful radiation device that created the tumors that existed in these poor primitive people. No, that isn't what happened. It isn't some sort of extraterrestrial implement that was left by space aliens. You know what the problem was? The Lord will not only humiliate the God of the Philistines because of their transgression he would humiliate the Philistines themselves. And that might not set well with you. But you need to understand something. That a God who is holy and a God who is just and a God who is perfect will bring judgment on those who oppose him. Now remember, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God 
And when they arrogantly treated the ark of God as though it was just one among many gods, they invited the judgment of God. We're living in a world and we're living in a culture that's playing a very, very dangerous game with the God of the Bible. Can you continue to ignore, deny, defy the true and the living God? And expect judgment to never come? Bible teachers have speculated on the nature of the plague that took place. Some far-fetched ideas include radiation poisoning, but some believe that because Ashdod was located close to the coast, that rats brought bubonic plague because what the Bible is describing in this chapter are the symptoms of bubonic plague, inflammation of the lymph glands, in particular the glands in the groin. Others think it's a plague of tumors, perhaps severe hemorrhoids. As a matter of fact, that's part of the clue that's given to us. Read verse 9. So it was after they carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction, and he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out. It says in the New King James, on them, other translations say, in them. Perhaps this is bubonic plague. Perhaps it's tumors resulting from dysentery. But here's what we know. Dagon was humbled and now even the people of the city have lost their dignity. As a matter of fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, it says at the end of verse 6, it adds, And in the midst of their land, rats sprang up. And there was a great death panic in the city. In chapter 6, just to give you a little sneak peek, when they're trying to return the Ark of the Covenant, they make little tumors of gold, and they make rats of gold. Now, think about their convoluted thinking here. Ready? The God of Israel, because He's generating rats and tumors, why, that must be what He wants. See, now we laugh because of the absurdity of the statement. Does God want rats and tumors? Is that what He longs for? No, He, he longs for people to turn from their sin. And to turn to him. Do you guys remember? Uh, I think it was at Christmas time. Um, they had the grand, you know, they had the opening at Walmart. And do you remember the story of an elderly gentleman who was trampled to death by early shoppers? And people blamed Walmart? It never occurred to them to say, well, wasn't. If the early, angry, greedy shoppers who trampled him to death? Was it Walmart that killed him? Or were, was it the shoppers who killed him? You see, some people reading this verse are, are asking that very same question. What is killing these people? 
In verse 7, And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The heart of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, and Dagon our God. These ancient people were able to see what so many people refused to see. That rebellion, transgression, mocking, insulting, denying, mocking the true and living God is going to have some consequences. And so they said, okay, how about if we not do this? How about if we send the ark back where it belongs? Look at verse 8. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines. Remember, there are five principal cities. We don't exactly know what the government was like in the ancient land of Philistia. We have some um, evidence that would seem to indicate that each operated like a little city-state, like it was in the Grecian Empire, that these people had equal access to one another, that they formed really a coalition, if you will, of states. And so the ruler of the cities may have operated along those lines. And in verse 8 it says, Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves the ark of the the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Well, yeah, what do you do with it? Sell it to the used ark dealer? Melt it down for jewelry? Trade it back to the Israels? The Israelis? Destroy it? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. Now, who remembers what famous person came from Gath? Goliath! Goliath was from Gath. But you know what else Gath was? It was the closest Philistine city in direct line of Judea. In other words, it was the border. If we were to put it in terms in the United States of America... Imagine you're going to Texas and there's El Paso. And right on the other side of El Paso, there's Juarez. There's these two cities separated by the Rio Grande. And the city of Gath was the last principled place of the Philistines as you went to the Valley of Elah. Now, the Valley of Elah, of course, is is that famous place where the battle between David and Goliath takes place. It is the last place where you are on the coastal region of Philistia, and then you go into the Valley of, of Elah. As you come out of the Valley of Elah, it begins the mountains of Judea. And so they go, let's send it to Gath. Because it says, so they carried the ark of of the God of Israel away. I'm going to suggest something to you. If the ark of God goes to Gath and there's no ill consequences, the leaders conclude, well, maybe all of these things are just coinkydink. That's the way my children used to say coincidence. I didn't even think coinkydink. No, it's a, a, is, could, could this all be a, a coincidence? That the pain, the pressure, the trial. It's just a coincidence. You know, sometimes we do exactly the same thing. We think 
that the things that happen to us, well, you know, it happens to us. But I'm here to tell something, tell you something. The God of the Bible is a God who is concerned about even the smallest details of your life. Remember the Lord Jesus talked about the fact that sparrows can't fall to the earth without the knowledge of God. How much more if he counts even the number of the hairs on your head? Now, for some of you, that's not a difficult thing. But for others, you know, there's a fairly significant amount of hair still left on the top of your head. It says in verse 9, So it was, after they carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction, and He struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Okay, how many of you vote for coincidence? Yeah, at this point, they're going, mm, something is definitely not right. In verse 10, therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So, so far, it's been in three of the five principal cities. So it was as the ark of God came into Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They brought the ark of God of Israel to, to kill us and our people. We don't want to have anything to do with a deity that might judge us or kill us. It says in verse 11, So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it doesn't kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Now, if you've ever asked the question, does God know what's going on? What do you suppose the answer is? Yeah, God does know what's going on. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam doesn't move an atom more or less than God wishes. Every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses, that the creeping of an aphid over a rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence, and the fall of the sear leaves from the popular is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He who believes in God must believe this truth. Some people accuse Spurgeon of fatalism. What are you saying, Spurgeon? But fatalism is different from the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Faith says the thing is and must be, so it is decreed. But the true doctrine is God has appointed this and that, not because it must be, but because it should be. Fate is blind. But the destiny of the scripture is full of lies. God sees. God knows. God understands. 
Well, do you mean that God's responsible for everything? Yeah. You mean even evil? No. You see, you have to understand something. When we use the term responsible, we often mean accountable. There's one question that you're going to have to ask and answer, and no one can ask and answer it but you. Each and every one of you will come to a place in your life where you you must ask this question. Is God accountable to you? Or are you accountable to God? You don't have to answer it right at this very moment. But each and every person must ask the question and answer the question. As a matter of fact, this is what Psalm 115 verse 3 says. As your pastor, I feel obligated to give you a cheat sheet. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Does that disturb you? When we fight against nature, or we fight against disease, are we fighting against God? When the Mississippi River swells and we begin to pack bags of sand in order to keep our neighbor's house from flooding. Are we fighting against God? When we have a tumor in our head, are we fighting against God? When we experience a setback, are we fighting against God? The answer is no, because God isn't a tumor. God isn't nature. God isn't a river. God isn't disease. Christianity is not paganism or pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that everything is God. And that is not true. Nature is not God. As a matter of fact, we are told in the book of Genesis that God has given us both the opportunity and the privilege of addressing nature and subduing it. Our original marching orders from God were fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. After the fall, we battle thorns and thistles. We war against nature. We earn a living by the painful toil and sweat of our brow. And so when we challenge the tumor and when we fill the bag of sand, when we go into the devastation of the hurricane and the tornado, when we provide help and hope and love and assistance and support and encouragement to one another, are we fighting against God? No. We're honoring God. Every doctor who removes every tumor, I think, is a a God-honoring thing. Every person who fills a bag, a sack with sand in order to keep his, his, his property from flooding, I think, is doing a service. Today, critics and skeptics look for other causes to explain the events that, that took place on the ancient coast of Israel. There's a lot of skeptics and false teachers who will say, you know, it really wasn't God who brought those tumors. You know what it was? It was the ancient bubonic plague. It swept in, 
and it just happened. Is that the impression you're left with from the text? I'm not left with that impression. The Lord judged the people of Ashdod with tumors. And the scripture describes the scene. Judgment fell on Ekron, and the cries went up. Death and panic filled the city. And the cry created a call for leadership of the Philistines to return the ark of God to its rightful place. If you can read this passage of scripture, if you can read this passage of scripture and come to the conclusion, God won't judge me. God won't judge the unbeliever. God won't judge the world. Then you're missing the whole point. Because for those who, for whatever reason, manage to escape the judgment and discipline of God on the earth, will face God when they leave this earth. You know, Jesus told the religious leaders in John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. If you don't believe that I am who I say that I am, you will die in your sins. I would be doing you the worst disservice possible if I left you with the impression that you're free to live your life any way that you want quite apart from God. One of two things is true. You are accountable to God or God is accountable to you. So, did the Lord destroy the pagan idol? What do you suppose the answer is? Did the Lord punish the people of Philistia? What do you suppose the answer is? What is the ultimate fate? What is the ultimate destiny? What is the ultimate end of idols? They're going to be destroyed. So is it a good idea to keep them or to ditch them? My my advice, ditch them. How are the lords of the Philistines going to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant and still maintain some sense of personal dignity and avoid future judgment? Oh, all of those answers are next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing people we are. We prop up things that have no business being propped up. And we refuse to let go of those things that must be gotten rid of. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength and the courage that when our broken, lifeless, empty, useless idol is found, bowing towards the threshold. Lord, we pray that we would do the right thing. That we would get on our knees and that we would place our face in the dirt. That we would extend our hands to heaven 
that we would repent of our sin and that we would turn to the true and the living and eternal and self-existent God who's revealed himself in the revelation that we call the Bible. And that, Lord, we would cry out for the remedy. Jesus, our Savior, who took our punishment, who embraced our judgment. Heavenly Father, we pray that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus would be all that we long for, all that we need. Lord, we pray that we would have the courage to fight disease and disaster. That, Lord, we would believe that there are circumstances when we render aid and assistance to our family and to our friends. Not trying to thwart or undo the will of God, but rather to do what that is, what you told us to do. To love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves. To extend the kindness and the courtesies that we would want extended to us in, a, in time of disaster and in time of need. And Lord, clearly, we want to support and advance your will. In Jesus' name.